You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to this week's Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer, uh, taking a little turn in the uh, host seat this week as we rotate through uh, some of our uh, panelists to take a little stab at the hosting duties. So we'll we'll see how this goes. Uh, we've got a great show coming up. Uh, it's been a fairly busy week for uh, the first week after the holidays. Um, seems like everything has sort of ramped back up after a couple quiet weeks and making up for lost time, both in the uh, world of politics and uh, in the state government. Um, bunch of things to talk about this week. We're going to talk with uh, Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer first about the um, sort of surprise departure this week of Budget Director Lee Roberts from Pat McCrory's administration. And we'll talk a little about the staffing and uh, leadership shuffle in the administration that's uh, gone along with that. Uh, we're also going to talk to Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer uh, about the charter school report that was uh, supposed to be out this week from the State Board of Elections, and we'll talk a little about why that uh, was not uh, put through to the legislature uh, this particular week and has been held back a little bit. We're also going to talk to uh, Pat Gannon of The Insider uh, about some changes uh, in the uh, House leadership and some charges that are out there, uh, rumors of a possible FBI investigation, some folks that don't seem to be getting along in uh, the House Republican ranks uh, over the past couple weeks and months. And uh, we'll also talk to Ben Brown of The Insider about a story he did recently on uh, body cams uh, for police and uh, how the state's going to be going about uh, trying to do some regulations surrounding that and, and dealing with all the uh, issues that come up around that. Of course, we'll wrap up the show, as always, with headliners of the week. So we're going to start talking with uh, Craig Jarvis a little about what's happened this week. Uh, Tell us, Craig, uh, just to get us up to speed with uh, the governor's administration and the uh, mystery announcement that was scheduled for 2 p.m. yesterday, and we all had theories about what it was and what it actually turned out to be. Yeah, there's nothing like a vague uh, press release from the governor's office saying there'll be an announcement, and that's all. Uh, in the afternoon and uh, so that set off all sorts of uh, rumors and speculation and we sort of were close we thought it might be some changes in the administration and in fact it was uh, it was to announce the departure of the uh, revenue secretary Lyons Gray as well as the budget director Lee Roberts and the budget director was uh, departure was really kind of a a big surprise excuse me Lee's only been in the job for uh, about a year and a half uh, it's it's not a high-profile job in terms of what the public knows, but it's a real key position, and it's somebody who takes what the, the governor's vision is for the state, turns it into hard numbers, and then tries to sell it to the General Assembly. And he did a pretty good job at that. I think he had a he, he had a certain reassuring presence, and uh, he, he had a way of talking to uh, the people he needed to talk to to, to, to convince them that, that he knew what he was talking about. And um, while Roberts wasn't as... Uh, probably didn't have as high profile as his predecessor, Art Pope, uh, he was still in the, in the center of things in a very big way. And uh, uh, I'd say I, one thing I noticed about him, the, the only uh, turbulence he kind of had during his stay there was recently when the issue of private prison contra- maintenance contracts came up, and he was kind of in the center uh, of that issue about whether some con- contracts should have been extended or not. And he just... Uh, 
he had an oversight committee meeting where they were gr- really grilling him on whether things were done properly. I felt like he talked their lingo. He, he spoke like a businessman, and uh, I, it just kind of was was reassuring. And uh, yeah, in a sense, he made almost the best defense for the governor's um, response and handling of that whole prison contract situation. When you heard it from Roberts, it it, it sounded better than some of the other explanations we've heard uh, for how that came about. Exactly. And he just had this uh, uh, kind of an aura of integrity, I guess. I mean, he, you know, we, he, he, he did a pretty good job representing the governor. And in fact, as he left, he, uh, you know, had as much praise for the governor as the governor had for him. And uh, it's going to be big shoes to fill for those those two budget directors. McCrory's first two uh, will now uh, be replaced by a third uh, a third budget director, Andrew Heath from the Industrial Commission, uh, who's uh, very young, and I don't know that he's had all that much uh, uh, budget experience, but uh, we've got to take a, a look at that in the near future. Yeah, we mentioned the prison contract thing. That, that's a lot more heat than uh, a budget director uh, typically takes. Any sense of whether that had anything to do with sort of his shortened tenure as budget director? That was, of course, the first question that came to mind, but he was adamant that that was not the case, had nothing to do with it, nor was the fact that it's, you know, can, can be kind of a rough and tumble political world. He said, no, that, that didn't have anything to do with it. He, by the way, is uh, descended from Hale Boggs and Lindy Boggs, and he was kind of, uh, his parents were national journalists. He was kind of, uh, he, he kind of knows what to expect in the political world, but he said this was an opportunity to do something new, and he uh, he thought he would try it. So we'll see. It seems like there's been a lot of turnover recently in the governor's administration. He's lost a lot of his original cabinet secretaries um, as he comes towards the end of his first term. Um, is there a sense of this is normal that you get this amount of turnover, or is is there a certain rockiness to uh, serving in the McCrory administration that, that some of these folks have, have taken early exits? I think for the most part it's normal. It's just you know they've they've happened during the end of the year, and the people some have said they committed to a year only, and uh, others said that uh, you know things unexpectedly popped up. Uh, you know you could read what you want into these things, but I, I think it's probably pretty. Uh, you know you don't necessarily sign on for the full four years when you become a cabinet member for one for for example. Yep. All right. Thanks, Craig. Um, We are going to turn next to Lynn Bonner from the News and Observer, who had a a front page story about what was normally a a routine report that uh, goes to the State Board of Education and the legislature about charter schools. But uh, it it quickly turned into a a story. So tell us a little about how that happened. It became dramatic uh, when um, the lieutenant governor, uh, Dan Forrest, decided to pull the report from consideration. He made that suggestion and the state board and uh, committee chairwoman went along with it. Um, saying that uh, the report was misleading, didn't have enough positive things to say about charter schools, um, and uh, said that he wanted uh, more review. Um, Charters, you know, are layered with politics even more than um, traditional public schools are. And the report shows that, um, first, the tremendous growth of charter schools since the cap of 100 schools was lifted in 2011. Um, And it also shows that most of the new public school population growth has gone to charters and that the uh, population of traditional public schools is large around the state is largely stagnated. Um, but it also shows some um, uh, disparities in uh, race, ethnicity, and uh, wealth where um, white students are overrepresented in charters um, and 
Hispanic students are underrepresented and that uh, there are more wealthy students or student families in uh, charter schools than there are in traditional schools. Um, What the lieutenant governor didn't like about the report, he didn't say, but he has been critical of other reports that have gone on to... uh, that the boards had approved and have gone on to the legislature, one of them being the uh, what we call the teacher turnover, turnover report that shows how many teachers leave the uh, school system and leave the profession every year. Um, he has talked about and written about how uh, – that report is used to show higher teacher turnover than there really is. Um, and the legislature actually changed the name of that report so that uh, it no longer, t- no longer is titled Teachers Leading the Profession. So there's a lot of sensitivity to uh, a lot of these uh, politically hot-button issues, especially in an election year, where um, people are looking at, okay, well, how are teachers treated? Are there a lot leaving their profession? Are there a lot leaving the state? And what um, are charter schools contributing to education? Are they uh, detracting from traditional public schools? And that all was kind of laid out in a nutshell um, at this Board of Education hearing. It all sort of came together. Is this new data about charter schools? It seems like the trend has been, particularly because charters aren't required to provide transportation and school lunches, that they tend to draw perhaps a more affluent crowd that's than your traditional not, public schools. That's not entirely true. I mean, there is, uh, there are um, uh, quite a few uh, charters that provide lunch and transportation and make a point of doing that. But one of the things the report also shows is that there is a great racial disparity uh, among charters, that there are charters that are largely uh, white and there are charters that are largely African-American, and that over time there has been a trend toward more white students um, enrolling. The the population increase has been largely of white students, although um, one of the charter advocates said that since the cap was lifted, that is starting to reverse. But um, so that's not that's partially true, not entirely true. Um, so, but it the report does show that there are there is uh, segregation in charters. Yeah, and and despite uh, the lieutenant governor's effort to sort of uh, put a, a damper on this report, it's it's out there. So you yeah, and I can go well, online and read it. Yeah, well, it's it's online, and and you know everybody's looking at it and reading. It. And what's going to be interesting to see is okay when they come back with a new one, what's been changed? I mean, what did people think was too negative about charters, and uh, and where did the where did the big edits come in? Yeah, did Dan Forrest say at all what what sort of metrics he wants to see them used in a revised yeah, report? He or? did not. He did not. But I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussion. Uh, as we go into our rewrite. All right. Thanks, Lynn. And we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to uh, chat about some of the uh, drama in the uh, House Republican Caucus, uh, as well as police body cams, and of course, headliners uh, in just a few minutes. Stay with us. In 2016, when you go to the polls, bring your passion and be sure to bring a photo ID. You see, this election, you'll be asked to show an acceptable photo ID at the polls. If you don't have an ID, or if you're unable to obtain one, there are still options for voting. There are lots of acceptable IDs. But only one you. This election, be seen, be heard. For information on exceptions or for help getting a free ID, visit voterid.nc.gov or call 866-522-4723. 
Welcome back to the Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer, taking a little turn in the hosting chair this week. And we're going to talk next about uh, sort of drama within the House Republican ranks that's sort of come to the forefront in the the last couple of weeks. Uh, uh, Right as uh, we were going into the New Year's weekend, uh, there was a report by a Charlotte TV station that uh, said that uh, according to several unnamed sources, uh, FBI investigators had questions for several members, uh, or at least one member, I think it's of the uh, House Republican legislators uh, regarding some sort of accusations uh, about leadership. Uh, it didn't go on beyond that other than to list some recent uh, controversies uh, involving uh, members of the House leadership. Uh, so I put some calls in to uh, different folks uh, among sort of the top House Republicans. Uh, Charles Jeter, uh, one of the representatives there, the House Majority Leader Mike Hager, uh, Speaker Tim Moore, and uh, House Rules Chairman David Lewis, none of whom had heard anything about a, a possible FBI probe. They hadn't talked to anybody uh, within their caucus who's heard from the FBI. So we really don't know uh, sort of where these reports came from or, or what those rumors were about. But I asked um, uh, particularly uh, Lewis and Moore uh, about sort of how they thought uh, a rumor about a possible FBI probe might have come about. And they both suggested that sort of politics were uh, in some way to blame, um, and particularly with the uh, concerns that they've had from uh, other members of the Republican caucus. And uh, Pat Gannon of The Insiders joining me now. He's uh, written some about uh, this rift within the, the House Republican caucus. So Pat, tell us a little about sort of the the background on this and and why this could have prompted some accusations back and forth about whether the FBI is is jumping into something or or whether someone has just planted a rumor. So clearly, uh, this is an issue that isn't brand new. During this past, during the 2015 session, there was a group of sort of more conservative House Republicans who kind of branched off from from the rest of the, the House Republican caucus and and clearly in certain uh, parts of the session weren't happy with the way things were going inside their caucus. The, it played out during the budget debate. It played out during incentives debates. It played out in other areas. Uh, aside from that, I don't know what's the cause of the recent uh, very public uh Disputes between certain members of the Republican caucus, uh, particularly um, uh, House Majority Leader Mike Hager and Representative Justin Burr of Albemarle, uh, Stanley County. Um, They have uh, both been on the record uh, um, with serious complaints about certain members of the House leadership, House Speaker Tim Moore, uh, Representative David Lewis, the House Rules Chairman, and so I've written about some some uh, complaints they've had about the way Representative David Lewis handled certain pieces of legislation. And in fact, there's a an ethics complaint uh, in the uh, um, the House Ethics Committee right now from Representative George Cleveland uh, complaining about the way uh, the Rules Chairman David Lewis handled uh, a piece of legislation in the session. So that's kind of all the the backdrop. Um, to what's going on now, and they're they're fighting in blogs. I mean, there's there's blog reports about um, this, that, and the other thing, and I, you know, I don't even know where to begin or where it's where it's all going to end up. But yeah, it's- I think the the biggest surprise in all this was Justin Burr's um, reelection announcement when he essentially had like a two page just list of allegations of things he thought Speaker Moore had done wrong, uh, which was a very odd way to kick off your your reelection effort. I thought. Um, but then the biggest surprise with that was the sort of the reaction to that. Obviously, you got a very strong reaction from 
Tim Moore. Uh, but then it seemed like uh, Mike Hager, the majority leader, was was sort of uh, at least comfortable with what Burr was saying, if not outright endorsing some of his concerns. Yeah. So now we have both kind of both sides, the leadership, the speaker and Representative Lewis and others kind of saying that that they are the majority in the House and there's this small group of of people who aren't happy and they're just louder. Uh, but then you have Mike Hager's of the world and, and Justin Burr who who are saying that their group is a lot bigger than than um, the speaker and David Lewis would uh, seem to let on. So that, then there's a discussion of, so what's going to happen in the 2016 session? Are they going to all be able to get along well enough to pass anything? Is this a a um, power play by this more uh, conservative group of House Republicans that may want to um, uh, take over the speakership and the leadership come 2017 if they're all reelected? I know uh, Speaker Moore has told me he's, he plans to seek the speakership again um, in 2017. So it's just it's one of those things. And there's no sign that it's going to end. I mean, this seems like. Uh, the folks are pretty angry on 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 both sides, and and we'll see what happens next. It seems like this could almost play into the primaries a little bit if there's some of these seats uh, where uh, the more establishment, Tim Moore aligned uh, incumbents are, are getting sort of a Tea Party or more conservative challenger. Uh, if some of those folks win, uh, could the balance of power change at all, or is it is this too much of a minority to really? turn over the leadership i think it's it might be too much of a a minority at this point and i also don't think there's enough enough contested races enough um incumbents who could lose to really shake things up too much i mean there might be you know a couple uh people here or there that might join one side or the other but i don't think um you know i don't think there's enough justin burr has an opponent um, David Lewis, I think he has a Republican he has one. opponent. Nelson Dollar has a Republican mm-hmm. opponent. That I think he's already done some uh, radio advertising, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of surprising, sort of trying to suggest that you needed a more conservative person in that seat. So we'll see, but I don't know that it's that much. Yeah, and there was a conser- there was a, a Charlotte area uh, Republican leader apparently trying to drum up opposition to Mike Hager back in the you know a couple months ago and that never panned out so I think he's he's unopposed but it just seems like the, it, it's a lot of politics you know whether the FBI is really investigating I have no idea um, that's a good way to get uh, to to make people look bad uh, whether it's happening or not I mean second FBI is mentioned. Um, yeah, suspicion goes up pretty dramatically. Suspicion goes up. So who knows? I mean, we haven't, nobody's heard, as far as I know, nobody from the FBI has told anybody that they're investigating. But, um, you know, maybe we'll get a call later today. Yeah, who knows? Well, maybe thanks, not. Pat. Thank you. All right, we'll turn to uh, Ben Brown from The Insider next. Uh, he did a big story um, and a, a video that accompanied it. Uh, came out about last Sunday. Uh, check it out. Uh, I think you can find it at newsobserver.com slash dome on body cams and all the regulatory uh, landscape around that. So just kind of fill us in with where, where do we stand with body cams in North Carolina as far as usage and, and sort of what rules govern how police handle this kind of stuff? Right. You know, they're, they're not a standard yet, and that's kind of the bottom line is that Uh, before they become a standard, before every police agency gets them. And I'm not saying every police agency is going to get them. We're not to that point yet. But before we get to a point where they become so substantial uh, that they're fairly ubiquitous, is uh, there needs to be some sort of maybe uniformity with policy and best practices, according to a lot of law enforcement agencies. Not everybody thinks this, but um, according to 
Taser, which is one of the primary vendors, they have, you know, like 30-something, maybe close to 40 uh, police agencies or law enforcement agencies that they've sold body cams to. Uh, The Charlotte-Mecklenburg area, I believe, they were pretty early on, too, and I think they have the most in the state, uh, beyond 1,000. Um, but policies and best practices, you know, what, what are we doing? Like, should all the agencies, should it be a local decision? Should there be some state standards that people go to? Um, so we're talking in the, in, the, in the way of, you know, video access. You know, policies vary uh, between agencies on who can actually access the footage, you know, which gets into the question of what are these videos supposed to be? Are they for personnel and officer training? Are they for, you know, internal affairs to review these videos to see how they can improve officer behavior? Or are they for evidence gathering? Or are they something purely for the public in the way of transparency? And I think a lot of people in the public think that that's what it is. It's for transparency. But if you ask a lot of police agencies, they don't release this stuff. They consider it evidence or they consider it a personnel uh, matter. So if you get into issues of personnel and evidence, yeah, that's a big wall to public access. So there may be some updates and statutes to kind of clarify because uh, I, I... Took a trip out to the Greensboro Police Department a little while back with uh, Clifton Dowell of The Insider. We uh, got some video footage and interviewed some people out there. And one of the points that um, the uh, the supervisor, the body cam supervisor out there made was that, is it fair for us to sit on footage that's comparable to footage that another police, a- police agency might release to the public for the sake of transparency if they don't consider it ev- evidence or a, you know, a personnel matter? So questions like that, which, you know, without standards, you can maybe kind of create situations where the public is going to criticize you as an agency for not doing it the way another agency did. So that's kind of the bottom line. But it also gets into questions of storage and costs. How long are we supposed to keep footage? Because if you just if you keep footage forever, you know, you're going to have a lot of stuff you need to to account for and label and keep forever more. And at what point? Maybe do you, do you release them to the public? Just standards are kind of elusive right now. So do they have similar stuff for dash cams. Obviously, that that video has been around for a while, and yeah. I assume they've figured out how best to handle that. And, and the best answer to that right now is that it's sort of just kind of adding to the responsibility of keeping up with dash cam footage. If you ask, uh, sir, I spoke with Eddie Caldwell at the uh, the sheriff's association. He said that current statute is kind of clear on. Uh, on public records and, and, and what evidence is and what personnel matters are. And if it's a policy of the police agency, you know, that, let's let that dictate, but it's already in law. Except other people will say, you know, this is kind of a case, so we've had in the past of, you know, written documents and record, audio recordings and all of that being kind of fairly clearly addressed by public records law. But we're getting more into the, the realm of technology and video in a way that might be outpacing statute. So we might need to kind of update things to at least acknowledge something specific to body cameras because statutes are not, you know, specific to body cameras right now. You know, getting everybody on the same page with that, but with dash cams, yeah, it ends up being kind of like just an added responsibility, added costs. Um, There's cloud storage. A lot of agencies won't immediately release dash cam footage. There have been cases where newspapers have had to sue to get dash cam footage. Uh, for police chases, that kind of thing, if they've sat on it for evidence and, and the newspaper argues that it's public record. So do you want it to be something for the courts to handle or do you want the statutes to kind of clearly state what... And, and police agencies, I think, want that. I think they kind of want something they can point to where they can take their hands off it and say, law says we can't release this right now, this is evidence. Or law says we got to release it, not a problem. Yeah, any appetite in the legislature to tackle this in the short session? It seems like it's 
it's kind of a touchy subject, and then you don't want to be seen as, as being anti-police if the police are lobbying for a certain way, but at the same time, there's obviously a huge public push for transparency. That's right. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's sort of the thing. that The public wants it, and police agencies want it. So there is, a, you know, there is a common push to have body cameras. Like I said, they're not a standard yet, but there is a common push to have them. The legislature, th- there is a bill that's still floating out there. It passed the House, and it's sitting in the Senate. It's el- eligible for action, but it would basically just study the issue. This is separate from bills that have already been filed. To actually, there have been bills filed to mandate body cameras for all, all police agencies, and I think there maybe would be a funding component to that. But that didn't really go anywhere. It's too early for that. But um, uh, Representative Elmer Floyd, Representative Alan McNeil, uh, who was who was passed law enforcement himself, uh, they see this as something kind of like an emergent issue that needs to be studied a little bit more before it becomes a standard. And, and, and that's the conversation about finding the balance, you know, like what state standards should there be versus what sort of local policy. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens in the short session. My money is probably on a study bill that seems to be the, the safest way politically to, uh, to go forward with that. Thanks, Ben. Mm-hmm. We'll be back in a moment with Headliners of the Week. So you smash your thumb with a hammer. Ouch! You race to the hospital. And they ask, what medications are you taking? Thankfully, in your wallet is a list with your medications on it. Wife went to safemedication.com, downloaded the free template, and wow, that pink pill has a real name. To create your own medication list, visit safemedication.com or talk with your hospital pharmacist. Brought to you by the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. Welcome back to the final segment of this week's Domecast. It's the segment everyone looks forward to, at least I do, the headliners of the week. Uh, and this week we've got uh, three to choose from. If you've uh, a regular listener to the Domecast, you know I've always gone for the inanimate object route, so we'll see if anyone uh, tries to uh, influence the judge by uh, taking that while I'm in the hosting chair. But we'll start off with Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer. Craig, who is your headliner of the week? Well, this is uh, actually, they are very animate. I'm going to make a dual recommendation. Our two new uh, cabinet secretaries, Andrew Heath, who uh, uh, actually is not a secretary, he's the budget director. Sorry about that. Uh, and I guess if you know him, you call him Drew Heath. He comes over from the Industrial Commission. And uh, Jeff Epstein from the uh, Department of Revenue uh, replaces Lyons Gray as Revenue Secretary. And Epstein was the uh, kind of like the second command over there. Uh, so I'm just, uh, you know, they've got a big, big departments, big job ahead, and I'm, that, they're my pick. All right, Craig. Uh, thanks for that. Um, and we'll turn next to Pat Gannon from The Insider, who is your headliner of the week. I'm going to go the inanimate object route. Oh, and good say, choice. Yeah, just for you, Colin. <laughs> and say the $800 million Powerball jackpot, which, um, as we were sitting here, we just got the latest press release on that that said it's grown to $800 million. If you win, you could win an annuity worth $496 uh, million in cash. Uh, that's a lot of money. And um, uh, I was reading a, an article on, I think, CNBC, and it said your chance of your chances of winning are one in two hundred ninety two point two million, which is the same as flipping a quarter and getting heads twenty eight times in a row. I'm so gonna, this could be my lucky day then. Um, it could be. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm going to play for sure. Yeah, just you not? can't can't win if you don't play. All right. All right, Powerball, uh, Pat's uh, headliner of the week, uh, and always uh, good to go with money for headliners. 
Uh, we'll turn last to uh, Ben Brown from The Insider. Ben, who's your headliner of the week? Uh, I'm going to say the Missouri State Senate or alternately the uh, State House reporters in Missouri. And I don't want the, uh, the North Carolina Senate to get any ideas, nor the House to get any ideas from this. But uh, the Senate in Missouri actually voted, held a vote to kick reporters off the Senate floor. Uh, the, uh, the Senate President Pro Tem said that uh, some reporters, and this goes back years, had been tweeting the private conversations overheard on the floor uh, from senators. And the quote was, the Senate floor is, quote, our space. That's not your space, end quote. And that was from uh, uh, Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard, who may be my other alternate headliner of the week. But I'm going to say the Missouri Senate. Okay, Missouri Senate for uh, for challenging reporters from uh, being on the floor. Um, that kind of terrifies me because I've, I've a couple occasions overheard <laughs> side conversations that were done very loudly on the Senate floor and uh, tweeted them, uh, including a couple of exchanges between Tom Apodaca and some junior members of the Republican senators. So, well, uh, I, I know I'm past my time on this, but but since you mentioned that, there was a a Democrat in the in the Senate there in Missouri saying that. Uh, uh, it, it was a good idea to have media on the floor, and there shouldn't be really an expectation of privacy in this public place where we're doing the public's business. So, counterpoint. Yeah. Well, th- and if they kick us off, I mean, I'm really going to miss out on the uh, uh, colorful commentary from Representative Mitch Setzer as he goes back and forth between his office and his seat <laughs> on the floor. He always has some great quip about the, the goings on, and I, I wish I could just report that instead of Every writing time. a real story. Uh, anyway, so uh, with those choices, we've got the um, the big uh, staffing shakeup uh, at the, the McCrory administration and, and his. Uh, new leadership uh, folk of people over there. We've got uh, Powerball uh, and the uh, giant uh, jackpot that's uh, coming up and uh, the Missouri Senate and their efforts to uh, keep reporters uh, away from the, the center of the action. And um, I think I'll reveal my bias towards uh, journalist-related stories. I'm going to have to go with the Missouri Senate because right. that's uh, it, it's a great uh, access question and um, a pretty clever effort to, to try to curb the the actions of journalists from from getting the the juiciest stuff that goes on in the the legislature so we're going to go with that then we'll uh, have our headliner of the week for this week and uh, that's all the time we've got for this week's domecast i'm colin campbell from the news and observer thanks so much for uh, listening in this week and uh, keep up with the news all week long at newsobserver.com slash domes a great place to uh, catch all of our reporting as well as uh, the insider uh, news service uh, if you're a subscriber to that Uh, and we will see you next week here on the domecast Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.